sustain what? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet, which is still wrapped in a pandemic. It's hard for some to imagine now, but the uh, vaccine inequity around the world is tremendous, just like energy inequity and climate injustice. And until that gets worked out, um, we're facing not just this pandemic, but the risk of more pandemics. Uh, it's a human heated planet. As anyone who's been paying attention these last decades or years uh, has, is aware, um, it's a fraught planet when it comes to the information environment as well. I'm Andy Revkin at Columbia Climate School. This is sort of two two years and change in onto the in the Sustain What webcast that I do, trying to make sense of uh, complex issues that are consequential. And today we're going to discuss sort of the intersection of the information storm and the, the climate uh, crisis um, through the lens of the recent events. Um, again, anyone who's been paying attention has seen some young young people throw. Um, uh, uh, tomato soup on a uh, treasured piece of art under glass in, in the National Gallery in London. One of, but it's one of many, many such actions in recent years, uh, and actually going back decades. Um, I was at the uh, climate talks in The Hague in 2000 when, uh, when Frank Loy, representing the United States, got a pie in the face on the podium. Uh, you know, this is not new. The, what's new is the social media environment around it, which amplifies tremendously um, the more edgy parts of the conversation. So it's just great to have today a veteran of all this kind of, I call him a performance activist, <laughs> kind of like a performance artist who's been an activist for, for decades on this these issues, consumption, climate justice, uh, the Reverend Billy Talon. Uh, we have Mar Margaret um, Klein-Salomon, who is the executive director of the Climate Emergency Fund, uh, recent, and who has a background in psychology and has written in depth on the, uh, her definition of the climate emergency and what people can do to get into sort of a constructive state of emergency. We'll talk about all that. Uh, Dana Fisher, University of Maryland sociologist who studies movements. She studies activism and its uh, discontents and, and its impacts and has done this for the, the Women's March for um, the Blue Wave and, and also now uh, getting in depth on climate for a long time. She's worked on climate. And uh, Rob Willer, Willer from the... Uh, a lab, you'll tell me the name of it in a second, at, at Stanford, who's a sociologist uh, who's dug in on an issue that's come in, resonated in recent days, the idea of the radical flank. In other words, it's easy for us to kind of wag our fingers at uh, people who seem uh, you know, over the edge of reasonableness, but do they actually create a constructive dynamic that pushes people to... Uh, the into the issue and forward um, through more moderate means. It's just great to have you all here. Thank you so much. We pulled this together over the weekend. Um, and so, you know, again, I won't show the video again, but here's the uh, these young people in London who smeared soup. Uh, they had a strong message about both energy poverty, energy cost, and, uh, you know, what's going on in the world with uh, climate impacts. And, uh, of course, they're operating in an environment that also includes Exxon, plastering social media with its own, with its propaganda. Um, so it's no surprise that people have to go to great lengths to uh, break through some of those barriers. And of course, then there's just the news barrier. Uh, the area that I've worked in for decades uh, can be challenging. Uh, this goes way beyond soup. Uh, the Climate Emergency Fund and others have been pouring uh, millions of dollars into the edge, uh, and we're going to hear from Margaret on the strategy, the uh, the theory of change. And uh, there's a lot going on even today, all through the month of October. It's, it's, October is um, a, a month of action, for particularly in Europe, but in the United States uh, as well and elsewhere um, to try to drive their message. Uh, as I said, you know, sustained disruptive protests in 11 countries coming this October. And uh, a fellow named Adam McKay, best known as an amazing filmmaker who has attacked all kinds of targets uh, in his uh, fiction and quasi-fictional uh, satir satiric dramas and and uh, Don't Look Up has put $4 million of his own money into the Climate Emergency Fund. So it's, here we are. Uh, you're all on social media. I hope people out there will follow uh, all of you. And uh, let's just dive in a little bit here. Obviously, first, I think we'll get to this question of what is the uh, the goal of the uh, 
Climate Emergency Fund and and its uh, A22 and and the the groups that you you fund. And then we'll get some input from the sociologists. Uh, Rob has to leave in about half hour, so I want to make sure to get him in. And Dana and and then obviously Reverend Billy. Uh, I'll leave this for later, but I'd like to get each of you to sort of define when you think about emergency. What is the climate emergency? But I don't want to. I don't want to waste time with that right now. Um, sorry. Yeah. So, so I just wanted to get to another slide here. Sorry. Here we go. Okay. So Margaret, over to you. Um, how did you go from your? I want the dive you did as with your psychological background and and your other work to this project. And what's the goal? Thank you so much. I, uh, in 2014, I earned my PhD in clinical psychology, but I was so freaked out by the climate emergency that I decided to uh, devote my life to everything I can do to protect humanity in the living world. Um, I started by doing a lot of writing as well as I started in an organization called the Climate Mobilization. Our major tactic that we introduced was the climate emergency declarations that have now gone global. Um, and I came to the Climate Emergency Fund because, I mean, honestly, it it wasn't working. Um, I mean, now thousands of governments have declared a climate emergency. That's great, but are they still allowing the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure? Why, yes. So, I, I mean, I, I think it's really critical when we evaluate any particular action or tactic that we keep the big picture in mind. And uh, in a recent flooding event in Pakistan, 33 million people were displaced by one flooding event. One, I mean, it is impossible to overstate how bad the situation is with the climate. It's horrifying. More than 50% of young people around the world say that humanity is doomed. Mm. Okay? The situation is desperate. Normal methods have not worked. And I, um, we, this is the fastest way to create transformative change. The just, just Stop Oil, also I want to put Just Stop Oil in a little bit more context. Mm -hmm. one, one criticism I've heard of Just Stop Oil is why, why target Van Gogh? They should be targeting the oil companies. They have been arrested hundreds of times this year, blocking oil terminals, oil tankers, oil. They have uh, blocked 10 infrastructure sites at the same time, choking off significant amount of fossil fuel supply in whole regions of the United Kingdom. Did you hear about it in the news, <laughs> right? They took this action because they are desperate and they are right to be desperate. And I really don't care about politeness. It, but this gets to the goal though. What, how do you see this getting to what uh, Dana, I'm gonna play a clip in a minute about Dana, her, her work on the big question, how do you actually trans transition from um, attention, including news attention, to change? Yes. Um, there's a, a lot of different ways. Uh, I'll want to talk about two of them. One is called salience, right? And this has been showed, shown studying the impact of protest on elections, looking at every congressional district and race for the past 30 years and what protests were held in those districts, okay? And the evidence is clear. Dis protest for liberal causes causes more vote share for Democrats. Protests for conservative causes causes more vote share for conservatives. And like I said, the reason is salience. When people go to the polls, they are not asking, should I vote for the climate activists? They're not on the ballot, right? They're asking, how important is climate to my vote? How salient is this? Okay, so that's number one. The best thing that can happen for November is for huge climate protests to break out everywhere because Democrats are the number that the, their most trusted issue in terms of their advantage over Republicans is climate. So the climate voters we have, the 
we're going to be better in November. Okay, so that's number one. Number two is these demonstrations work because they recruit people, which is ultimately what the movement needs to do, right? So I know that the vast majority of people hate the activists and are so angry about this. Okay, but we can still recruit the, the let's say, the visionaries, the people who, the people who are done with uh, normal mode. And you know what? Guess what? There's more and more of them every day. So they, um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's time to go join the movement. The situation is dire. We have to stop the fossil fuel industry. Let's get in the streets. Let's do this. Okay. Uh, Billy, Billy, I think uh, <laughs> you've been in the streets for a decade. So, so what, what lessons have you learned that you can apply here? And you've actually participated in some of the demonstrations that uh, uh, were just being discussed. Uh, what's your take on all this? Get, making a difference, getting it from attention to action, to, to response? Well, lately we've been... Um, We've been going into uh, one particular Chase Bank. It's the Chase Bank at the Rockefeller Center. And uh, it's beautiful. It's very big. And it has all the races and classes sort of mixed in it, which a lot of the branch banks don't have. And we go in and we have town hall meetings with stacks. And you have to wait your line, in line to talk. Uh, and... We will, have, we will have a theme, an issue, a question will be raised by the host figure, and that will be to, uh, today we're discussing how can we stop the delivery of $5.5 billion from the 20 banks that J.P. Morgan Chase has gathered uh, to fund the Trans-Canada Pipeline that goes through Wet's and Wet, Wet, Wet's and Wet and Land and Mohawk mm -hmm. Land, and uh, we we have found that if you make your town hall meeting just in the middle of the bank and uh, involve other people, that uh, well, now you're showing a, a tape that isn't. That's a different. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I realized suddenly that's this is a wolf howl. So not, this is the uh, wolves of Wall Street, but not not the town hall meeting. This that, is uh, this is a this is more like a, a, a vocal concert on one side of the bank and me mm -hmm. preaching in a classic style on the other side of the bank about the wet sweatings. Yeah. I don't I don't think that. Well, they, but maybe that's a good. Let's let's talk about the difference. The, the, the town hall meeting idea sounds. Well, the town hall meeting, yeah. the yeah. police march up and the police immediately start to interrupt it and a very strong woman says no 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 you're next you know they the the police we find the police accept that they are in the stack and three other people have to talk before the, before they they get to the, and that's because an older woman has has scolded them and 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 said this is a meeting please please and and so we we found that uh uh you can transport uh, the culture, the cultural habits that are ingrained in us from different kinds of, of um, gatherings. You can transport it directly into the Rockefeller Center, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. <laughs> and that the, the, they get in line. They don't, they, well, you know, they haven't yet. Maybe somebody will see this and then they'll say, oh, it's all it's all fake. I can bust in there. But uh, uh, we try to move culture uh, into the center of when we raise the theme in J.P. Morgan Chase, how do we stop? Do we have to hack the materials? Do we have to do we have to stop? Do you stop pixels? How does move? How does money move? You know, and we ask that question. And before you know it, you have you have this middle middle management person saying, "Well, I, you know, you can't do that because there's security." Well, what kind of security? Before you know it, you're you're sort of on the inside in some way. They are on the inside of your activism in some way, and you're having a conversation um, uh, in which implicit is a common goal. Now, lately, at our favorite Chase Bank, we have not got the police have not been called 
And lately, they have been um, giving us sneaky little signals of thumbs up and stuff uh, <laughs> from inside funny. their partitions and so forth. So uh, we're very local. We, uh, we believe in just the, the physical presence of the body and, and um, making it into media, of course, for other people to, and that, to encourage them to be local too. But of course, the, the Rockefeller Center, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, Chase is from Standard Oil. It comes down, its lineage comes from the original Rockefeller Bank. Uh, and we have, we have some Chase people donating money to our theater group. So uh, what was your original question? Well, just, uh, you know, what do you see as the, the next step that could translate more what you're what you what you were just describing is kind of interesting because <laughs> it's kind of an engagement with the uh, quote-unquote the devil you, you know you you put a hex on the bank once so having a town hall in which there's some sort of crossover conversation seems different well we we, we used to be um adventurers in uh religious fundamentalism and i was i was a satirical televangelist like saturday night live or something and we did a lot of uh, casting demons out of, uh, you know, sweatshop companies, uh, cash registers and so forth. But now, you know, for, for the last, since before Occupy Wall Street, we've just, just been exclusively earth activists. Right. Uh, and it's not so important to us to try to dismantle the architecture of, of fundamentalism the fundamentalism that we're concerned with is is gas and oil right that's that's a good place to transition to the social scientists here um rob and dana um and getting back to the climate emergency fund that you have a whole website page on the, the theory of change uh and i'll get back to you margaret in a minute on articulating how much of what you're looking for is truly a society-wide uh, emergency uh, form of operating or this concept of radical flank effect, which seems more uh, strategic. Uh, but let's let's learn about that from a couple of people. Rob, I know you have to leave uh, soon. So maybe and you've dug in a lot on this question, which has been uh, debated uh, hotly on Twitter in the context of Van Gogh. Um, so what what is the radical flank effect? And do we have evidence? And we'll get to Dana of uh, how it could be employed on the climate challenge. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I should say that I, I've, I've moved my later appointment so I can, um, I can stay a little bit later. Oh, good. Um, pleasure and an honor to be speaking with all of you today and, uh, and, and, and speaking with Dana, who's a real, uh, really, really established scholar in this space. Um, I, uh, we, we, were, we do a lot of research in my lab, the Polarization and Social Change Lab here at Stanford on, on the effects of different protest tactics uh, used under different circumstances on perceptions of movements from observers and third parties. Uh, you know, it's not the only thing that matters, but it's definitely one of the things that matters about, about protest actions is uh, how does the general public or people potentially considering joining a movement, how do they perceive the movement, the righteousness of its cause, how motivated are they to join it? Uh, how, much do they, yeah, how much do they support the cause uh, that the activists are advocating for? And we find that some activist tactics are uh, can can put off observers and put off the general public and make them less supportive of of a cause and less supportive of a specific uh, set of activists. So, in one project that we worked on, uh, that we uh, published a paper called "The Activist Dilemma," we talk about the use of extreme protest tactics, and we conducted a series of experiments on how extreme protest tactics uh, affect perceptions of movements. And, and here we were interested not so much in violent tactics, but in uh, nonviolent, but highly disruptive uh, tactics. And so uh, there's a you know, pretty large literature on violent tactics. I would say there's you know, pretty consistent evidence that violent tactics uh, put off observers, that observers don't, don't like movements that are associated with violence, and that there are some exceptions where the violence is seen as like critically necessary to effectively advocate for a cause, or perhaps the opponent is seen as already violent or more violent. Uh, so there are definitely some exceptions. I mean, we live in a country that worships the leaders of a violent revolution that founded the country. So obviously there are exceptions um, and it's important to understand when those apply. But the lion's share of the evidence is that I think that uh, violent protests are, are less 
persuasive to the general public than nonviolent protests. But we were interested in uh, below that in terms of levels of extremity, you know, what about disruptive protests that's nonviolent? And what we found consistently in our paper, The Activist Dilemma, is that that sort of uh, those sort of protest tactics tend to lead the average observer, really regardless of their political stripe, as leads them to identify less with the movement, uh, with the uh, to support the cause that they're advocating for less, and to report they'd be less likely to join the movement. Um, now, we also published paper. Oh, one thing I want to highlight is when we talk about the activist dilemma, what are we talking about? We're talking about something that Margaret's sort of talking about, which is that those same tactics. There's very good reason to also think that you're more likely to get in the news if you use those tactics you're more likely to be noticed you're more likely to have whatever you were talking about you know actually covered and, and amplified to many many uh people and so that's sort of that's the dilemma we were highlighting is that tactics that are very effective at, at gaining attention also could uh have the effect of putting people off on average we we also wanted to study and then I'll, then I'll wrap and let other folks talk, but I want to just encapsulate a bunch of this research quickly. Uh, we also were interested in studying the radical flank effect. And, and honestly, I was very skeptical of the radical flank effect coming out of our work on the activist dilemma. But the radical flank effect is this idea that an extreme, uh, uh, protesters that use extreme or possibly even violent tactics uh, that are within the context of a larger movement that they make more moderate movement factions look better by contrast. And I think the most commonly cited example is the civil rights movement uh, in the U.S. in the 1960s and the, the way in which uh, more militant uh, civil rights groups, for example, the Black Panthers, may have made, made the more moderate uh, civil rights factions look more reasonable uh, by contrast. Uh, and this is invoked. I don't think there's a lot of direct evidence for that. I think there is direct evidence that significant policymakers leveraged radical flanks to advance their legislative goals, like you know, people you know, people like LBJ say we can get these folks off your off your back uh, if you you know side with us. But in any event, so uh, radical flank effects frequently cited. We wanted to see can we get some causal evidence for them um, because obviously there's radical flanks that have been associated with countless unsuccessful movements and also successful movements. So it's hard to know if they're really helping or if they're hurting or if they're not having any effect at all. Very hard to say. And so we did some experiments where we uh, manipulated, well, we either presented people with a radical flank group or a non-radical flank group and then saw how would that then affect perception of a moderate group, a more moderate protest group that they looked at right afterwards and we found we did find this you know this hypothesized contrast effect where if you've looked at this radical group that's using extreme tactics uh people didn't like that and were turned off from that group but then they tended to like uh the moderate group that they looked at right after that more so uh the way we published this was radical flank effects can have this effect we or radical flanks can have this effect on more moderate factions and movements but we take pains to highlight that we tested it under the most favorable circumstances. You know, you're seeing the radical flank, then right after that, you're judging a moderate group and you're very clearly seeing their different groups because they have different names and they they do different things. And so it's it's really kind of optimal conditions to get that contrast effect. And I'm a little I'm I'm personally skeptical that it that an action like this would would trigger that. I think it's more likely that it would either have no effect, which sadly, you know, most stuff has no effect and it's just sort of you add it all up and you, and you hope to get somewhere or that it makes the uh, the climate movement look uh, unreasonable by being attached to these tactics. Yeah. And, and that twi tweet that I'm showing on screen, you did say this really interesting point about the radical flank effect only works if people are uh, sophisticated, if their view is clear enough that they recognize there's more than one faction in uh, a push. And is that that seems as an important question to push to uh, Margaret and to Dana. So let's, let's get Dana in on your journey. Uh, Dana, is, uh, I did a conversation with her and some other IPCC authors last year, and you basically came to the conclusion, we don't know yet, you know, that there's a lot of research to be done on what's, whether activism in all of its varieties uh, is or can slow climate change unless I'm missing something. Well, uh, let me let me take a step back, uh, Andy. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. So I'll just say, so um, thank you for having me. And uh, this is great to be with all these people, many of whom I've 
interacted with before. And I think Margaret and I did like a radio show not that long ago. Um, so a, a lot of my research actually is within the world of social movements. And we social movement scholars don't tend to look at these material outcomes of activism, like the material changes in CO2 emissions and CO2 concentrations. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret mentions actually one of the very, very few articles that actually does draw these connections um, albeit, uh, unfortunately, I think that the data are, you know, don't, don't parse out well enough what exactly is working in terms of the effects in, at the state level in looking at legislative outcomes. But I think it's, it's really good work. I talk about it in the IPCC. Um, I was tasked with the IPCC, as you know, from that conversation where I went, you know, but, uh, but basically I was tasked with specifically looking at the climate effects of activism and engagement so much more broadly thinking about it. And there's not that much we know, which is really unfortunate. Um, and there's so much that we can learn. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important here when we think about the role of, you know, issue salience, how issue salience plays a role in terms of um, voting behavior. I mean, there is a lot of research that talks specifically about how extreme weather events plays a role in issue salience. And there's this interesting question about the degree to which extreme weather or deviations from normal weather, you know, combined with specific protest tactics, be they more or less confrontational, will mm -hmm. play a role in voting behavior. It's a fascinating question. We don't know the answer, but we need to do that kind of research. I mean, the other thing that I think, and I mentioned this to, to Rob when we were talking on, on Twitter today, but I mean, I think one of the big questions here um, is really we need to follow this stuff longitudinally to see how it changes over time. I mean, obviously we are dealing with a climate crisis and uh, things are not going to get better, at least not in the short term. So many people are experiencing, and you know, this is what I'm writing about for my new book, the experience of climate shocks is happening around the world, both in Pakistan, but also here in the United States, um, in every community. And as, a, as an, a result of that, you have a lot more people who we call in the social movements world, sympathizers who are likely to be mobilized to participate in some form of mass mobilization. Now, the question of whether getting, you know, the media experience of, of observing this kind of more confrontational activism or a peaceful protest on the street will play more of a role, it's unclear which will be more effective. Again, there's a lot of opportunities to do that kind of research. And, um, and that's really the best way for us to know. We can make a lot of claims. And I can tell you a lot about, you know, my research you had up that table um, that shows that more and more activists whom I've been serving over the past, you know, many years um, basically have become much more interested and experienced in civil disobedience. So we see a lot more of that. But I mean, I also have been doing research with um, folks from AmeriCorps and other non-activist uh, segments of the population and find there again, young people have growing experience with civil disobedience. So uh, a lot of what Margaret's saying, there are a lot of people who are primed for this kind of engagement. And if we look at the data that I posted from uh, Yale from April, it shows that depending on your political orientation or ideology, you may, you'll be more or less likely to sympathize with activists who are engaged in confrontational direct action. So, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity to start thinking about polarization. So it's great that Rob's doing this work. Um, but it also is a place where we have very limited data. Um, we have even more limited analyses because the kind of research we need to do to really test this out and then see like the IPC is going to ask me to do probably for AR7, now measure how it has an effect on the actual changes in concentrations of CO2 emissions, which you know, I still make faces about because it's, that's, we're, we're a ways off from being able to do that. I, we could do a lot about following the life cycle of civic engagement, participation, and activism. And there's lots of research that will show from the civil rights movement, but also from more recent protests that people, and this is, you know, I did also research around the post-George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests. There's a lot of uh, data that shows that people will become increasingly um, confrontational in their activism individually when confronted with um, suppression and also, you know, challenges to the democratic participation, which we saw, you know, firsthand all over the country during the summer of 2020. Um, I, you know, I didn't bring up those data when I was talking about this because we also have all the climate data, but, the, but it, this is very, very consistent across different movements on the left. So um, I'll, I'll stop there, but just to say, you know, 
I mean, I'd love to be able to measure the, the carbon effects of activism, but there's so many steps before that. And there's, I mean, there's so much to say. The, one, the last thing I'll just say is that, you know, I'd spent the summer interviewing activists who are participating in the climate movement um, for my new book, including a whole range of folks whom I call the climate disruptors, who are the ones who are engaging in civil disobedience. And one of the things that's really clear to me from this is that activists are taking what we call an all of the above, above um, you know, thought process with regard to thinking about their tactics, right? We see that all of the above uh, approach to dealing with the climate crisis by extracting all natural resources you can, but also investing in clean energy. Well, we see that with activism too. And I think we should take back that phrase and use it for, you know, in a different way to think about the ways that, I mean, this isn't just individuals who basically say, oh, I'm a direct, you know, action person or I'm a peaceful protest person. These are people who have like a toolbox of different tactics. And I think, you know, Reverend Talon was just saying that basically. I mean, you take you pick the tactic that fits the situation best. Um, so I think that anybody who's trying to bifurcate what's going on in the streets is kind of missing the point. For sure. And I think that came out once you get away from the sort of the worst part of Twitter, which is the <laughs> idiot genius, idiot genius kind of bifurcation. There was really a lot of talk about diversity of approaches. Um, uh, one particular that caught my attention was uh, Zaria Howell. At currently, you know, she's kind of criticizing this particular event, saying it was at the level of privilege that gets misses vulnerability. But in her her essay for uh, currently where she works, she closed with the importance of diversity, um, and I think that is something I've seen over and over again. It's kind of hard for people in the climate climate movement to embrace diversity even when they know it it's kind of necessary so, but margaret it's time for you because we we've gone through some uh, some questions about you know what works or doesn't you know what what has led to the confidence level to 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 put the millions of dollars into these particular um tactics thank you um so i think it's two things one is looking at history as well as social science, but looking at historically successful movements. Um, and then the other is looking at the ways that climate is unique, which I really don't think we should undersell. It is uh, the biggest challenge that humanity has ever faced. It threatens everyone individually. There's there's really not an analog. Um, so, but first, to looking at history, uh, you know, we're in the United Kingdom uh, for this demonstration. Let's look at the suffragettes right? They did so much property damage. They smashed up whole streets. And they did that not to whatever, not for clicks, not for, uh, you know, mm -hmm. self gratification. They, they did that because they were demanding the vote. And I that's I mean, who who wants to look back at that and say, you know, it didn't work more polite tactics, please, you know, no, you're turning people off. I, I mean, so, so yeah, look for, for, for the people decrying this tactic, I think, I think really looking at the movements of history um, is instructive, but, but then also climate is unique I, as a clinical psychologist, which is my basis for how I come to, to all of this, my diagnosis is that we are in a mass delusion of normalcy. Yes. And that, that is actually our core problem here, is that the institutions of society, particularly the media, but everything, the, all the businesses, all the organizations and the libraries and the universities and the museums, they're all just going, you know, putting one step in front of the other, planning for next year, that, planning for retirement. And, and so individuals in the same way, they're planning for retirement, they're planning their lives and their futures and their hopes and their dreams as though we weren't walking off a cliff. And it is something that I have seen, something that I've experienced personally and something that I've seen happen many, many times that when an individual has an actual reckoning with the truth of the climate emergency and they allow themselves to feel that emotionally as well as intellectually they allow themselves to grieve the fact that the future that they thought they had and their cherished hopes and dreams will not happen once you get there 
then you can get to a place of all in activism where you decide that uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to do everything I can. That's how you get the, the hunger strikers and these kids that have gone to jail five times and they keep coming back. I mean, we're talking about a level of commitment that is so high because it fits the stakes. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. Thanks. Um, Mobilize Hallelujah. So here, uh, I want to bring in a couple. Can of I ask here. a question, please? Yeah, of course. Can I ask a question? Totally. This is a conversation. You're a very powerful host. You know, we just shut up and wait our turn. Um, I'm interested if Rob considers Margaret a proponent of violence. Rob, you were just flipping around the word violence and it was covering uh, for a, a person who's an activist. It's almost meaningless. That's a big spectrum, Rob. That's yeah. all the way from euthanasia to uh, sure. shouting Bill McKibben lines in the window. You know, there, there's no, uh, there's, there's, there's property damage. There's mm -hmm. property flow damage where you turn off a valve. Then there's, there, then there's, then there's the, the taking an acetylene course, uh, uh, torch to the metal. Then there's, then, you know, so, so there's, I, I see eight, 18 steps there. And yeah. you saying violence, 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 violence. Uh, no, I didn't mean to keep repeatedly saying violence. I was talking about subviolent extreme protest tactics that involve disruption or destruction of property is more the focus of my work. I mean, we have studied violent protest uh, tactics and, and other, others have too. And the overwhelming, you know, finding there is that it tends to make things harder for movements in terms of perception. Uh, it, but there are also exceptions happy to, you know, speculate with others on on the exceptions uh but i i don't think of this as an example of violence and i don't think the climate movements characterized by significant violence as conventionally defined and i wouldn't think of margaret as promoting violence unless unless she said well, she was in its, <laughs> well, in its modern form it 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 the earth first people this the this this the redwood summer people uh, uh -huh. the radical fairies I mean, we the people that uh moved us psychologically we we have a violent society it's 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 you know we have an 800 billion dollar pentagon budget every year we have a violent society we have we have uh a recent study uh says that if you live in new york city and you have a computer that you are subject to 10,000 advertisements a day so we're not starting from a neutral position when you when you your your uh, your fantasy uh, you know person who either, is either put off or turned off or turned on, uh, they're not they're not they're not a neutral person with with a static news uh, 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 news empire over here and a, a an, another st st static you know uh, transportation and energy and food sector over here it's it they're not standing still we we have we have the whole question of whether persuasion works that's what margaret's talking about does persuasion work who could be more articulate than naomi klein and bill mckibben and and yet what have they done they have energized and activists who have energized activists who have energized activists who finally that fifth layer of activism is where they're risking arrest and they're in the news. You know, the, 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 the fact is that we have a very narrow society in which we're constantly bombarded by the same ad. And we haven't found a way to, to counter, to counter as using Kurt Vonnegut's phrase to counter punch with that. So completely prejudicial climate system psychological climate system coming at us yeah right the, the fact that the fact that it this is what it takes to get climate into the into the news mm. I, I mean truly no one wants to be doing this kind of action it's risky they they absorb hate they absorb uh you know prison they're doing it because they're desperate and nothing else has worked so and the idea that it's going to turn people off of joining the movement, I don't. I don't find that very compelling, particularly because of just the time frames involved. 
right? We don't need, we, we don't have time to slowly build a successful movement piece by piece. And I am very aware that that is what is considered what, what, what you need to, to win. Right. I love the uh, union organizer, Jane McAlevey, and she wrote a book called Organ on organizing called no shortcuts. Right. But the fact is we need, we need shortcuts. We need to find ways to go exponential. Right. And that's what Climate Emergency Fund invests in is organizations that have and campaigns that have the possibility of to create actual breakthroughs, uh, which I would argue this is an example of. But it, to create actual breakthroughs, not linear progress, because as Bill McKibben says, winning slowly is the same as losing. So it's like we we need we need a climate movement that's a thousand times maybe more powerful than what we have today. Like let's not kid ourselves and mm. think that what we have today has any possible chance of winning. Mm. Um, mm. And I also just want to mention that Climate Emergency Fund only, only supports uh, nonviolent groups and only supports legal activities with our funding. We fund- well, this, is where, this is where I'd like to dig in a little bit. So sure. hold that thought. Uh, in July, I wrote about the D.C. area disruption here. There was just another one recently. And um, this is where I, you know, I'm known as kind of a middle guy, uh, not just because of my journalism, but because of my temper, temperament. And um, when I saw what unfolded on that highway that day, where um, a parolee who was trying to get to his job at risk of going back to prison, who has a son, he, I wrote about it in this way, uh, saying, I, I took up his cause. He says, open one lane. He said, just open one lane, please, or I'm going to lose, I'm going to get violate parole and go to prison. And uh, he ended up arrested with him because he lost his temper. Guess what? And I, that's a form of violence. Um, so where, where is the spectrum? And, and, you know, when you say on your website, you told the New York Times, you don't, that people who apply for your grants have to expressly explain how they insulate, uh, how they don't do anything illegal. Uh, everything we're talking about here is illegal. So how do you do that? But let, let me just play this clip. I think it's worth you hearing. Hopefully, uh, let me turn. And you are disrespectful. I'm trying to see my kid grow up and not be in prison. And you are disrespectful towards that. You are disrespectful. Yo, I got one kid. And you are disrespectful to that. I'm asking you for one thing. So I can go to fucking work. No, 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 no. Y'all recording this. I just want one lane. Y'all continue our protest. I'm doing my protest right here for one lane. One lane. Yo, one lane for the people that are disrespectful to y'all world, but y'all are disrespectful to us. One lane. Give us one lane and continue protest. I promise you, more followers will come. And I don't want this sun to start. That, that is what we're looking for. It ain't starving. It's development because, yo, they're going in anyways early because we destroying the world. I understand yeah. what you're saying. So get this one lane and let me develop him as much as I can until we did. That's all I'm saying. And y'all y'all are literally disrespectful to us like y'all, like we are disrespectful to the world. Now he said some pretty interesting things there. Wow. Um, uh, he ended up losing his temper and getting dragged into a police van. And I still don't know his, his, his outcome. They all had to uh, put four days, I think, in prison. Was it one? And they were all complaining about that. Um, they could have ruined this guy's life because they don't have a pressure valve on these things they do. And so, Margaret, is that appropriate? I think I'm I think I would support a, a keep one lane open proposal. I that that I think makes sense. Um, I they do have a policy to allow emergency vehicles to go through. I don't I've, know. I've heard about ambulances having to be diverted. So I don't. They don't, I don't have know. any reasonable policy for that. So so yeah, I don't. Um, I don't have a problem with a one lane open policy. I um, so, so just tell us then how you do keep you to this point you made to the New York Times, where you say, uh, it's hard for me to read the small screen, uh, 
that ent yeah, entities that apply for um, e the use of our training, education, and et cetera, et cetera. But grant recipients must confirm that the money that uh, money that has not been spent, or that the money has not been spent on activities prohibited by law. And then here, the Climate Emergency Fund gave close to a million dollars to A22. Um, right, right. So, of, so, goes here. so how does that work? Right. It's, I, I realize that it, it seems complicated, but it's it's actually not. I, we fund the legal activities that these groups do. They have major recruitment, training, education, and like capacity building programs, right? These are activities that are not only legal, but they are foundational to our democracy, mm. right? Or should we are, are, should we really restrict funding to go out into communities and talk about the scale of the problem and talk about a response that involves civil resistance? I find that very repressive. So yes, do these do these groups take nonviolent civil resistance? Yes, and we don't fund that. I understand the confusion because um, we do uh, morally support it, right? I, 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 we do think that the Van Gogh action, or I do personally anyway, think that the Van Gogh action was a breakthrough, okay? But we didn't fund it. Yes, we recruited, like, what, is there any link between these things? Yes, but I'm talking, I'm explaining why it's legal. I, and, I mean, one can say, okay, that's not in the spirit of the law. I, I mean, okay, well, fine. But the, the fact of the matter is, we are a 501c3 organization that provides funders a safe, legal, tax-deductible way to support uh, radical uh, direct action movements in their legal activities. Hmm. Okay. I think, uh, Dana, you had your hand, your hand up. Well, I didn't want to interrupt because, I, I mean, this is an important conversation. I just wanted to say, I mean, one of the things that I think would be really valuable, I mean, you know, I'm a social scientist. I am always thinking about the empirical side here, but I mean, and I'm also a social scientist who's been studying, you know, climate activism and activism since, since COP6, Andy, where I was there, where the protesters came after actually throwing something much more aggressive at Berlusconi in Italy, if you may recall. Um, anyway, all that being said, um, this is this wonderful opportunity to actually look at the effect of the tomato toss or whatever you want to call it. I mean, this, this action, right? So the action took place in the UK. There are a couple of folks who have posted about having done polls or doing research where they've actually gauged the attitudes towards by the general public, by registered voters, by others in the UK. There's that study that's going around um, to this kind of activism. And if you want to see what the effects of this activism are and the degree to which it had issue salience and it mobilized sympathizers, this is the time to do the research to evaluate it. You could do it. So there's a, this is a post-test to look at what we already know from data that were collected in April or data that were collected. I'm trying to think, I wrote down a couple of the dates. So we have the Yale data were from April. I'm not sure when the, um, that uh, the, the uh, public opinion survey with YouthGov, with YouGov happened, but anyway, this is the time to do it so we could see the effects. Um, anybody who yeah. wants to know how it matters. Who, and the, the, with the key question being not, what do you think of the activists, but do you think the United Kingdom should continue to issue oil leases for new drilling? Yes. Well, no, that actually, I, actually, Margaret, I think that we should not. And oh. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if anyone on this call or anyone in general who's the people in general who are critical of the activist tactics, whether they think the United Kingdom should continue. Well, or, Margaret, I mean, I think that that's interesting with regard to the broader target of the activism. However, here, the question is really the effectiveness of the activism for, the, for what you're talking about, which is salience to the general public or mobilizing sympathizers. And actually there are ways to measure that, which is not asking people their opinions about the specific goals of the activists, but rather about their positions on the organizations that support direct action and whether or not people are willing to participate in direct action, which are the kinds of questions that I ask in my samples whenever I do this work. So that we have a pretest post-test basically, it'd be an ad hoc, not a real one because we didn't do it ahead of time, but you could easily do that and get at that as well as ask a question, of course, about the, the, 
the goals. The goals are much harder and that's part of the problem. I mean, it's almost as hard to measure, you know, the degree to which people are sympathetic to the goals as it is to look at the actual effectiveness of these kinds of tactics on the actual policy outcomes and emissions. But it could all be done. I'm showing on the screen uh, another complicating factor. Literally, um, we live in a world of simultaneous overlapping crises. Uh, if you're in a country or if you're a poor person, uh, where like um, Destiny Knock at Carnegie Mellon recently did a study about how poor people in Pittsburgh uh, wait, to, if they have an air conditioner, they wait four to seven degrees hotter before they turn on their air conditioner because they don't, they don't have the money to for the electricity for the air conditioner. Um, so if you're poor and you can't get through the winter and there's a, the protest is framed around stopping oil and gas, you know, with this crisis unfolding because of Vladimir Putin and, and other longstanding issues. And of course, we know, we know, you know, the systemic nature of fossil fuels leads to war like what's happening now, but that doesn't matter. Uh, winter is coming. So how do you, uh, I, I wanted to get quickly from the two researchers, uh, Rob, and Dana, how do, you, how do you study for one effect when you have a three-dimensional, x-dimensional landscape of things going on? COVID-19 is another. And then we, yeah. then we get back to the activists. I think it's super difficult. I mean, you know, we have this research suggesting that uh, extreme protest tactics that are highly disruptive like this turn off the general public, that that's robust across the ideological spectrum. Presumably there's folks that are outside of a movement that are very close to potentially joining it and are very, very like the people engaging in the extreme protest tactics. Presumably they would be more likely to join a movement because they're, they map on to the, they're almost the people that would have decided to do it themselves. So I think it would be unreasonable for somebody like me to say, everybody is turned off by this because mm -hmm. uh, it's, very likely there are people just right on the other side of participation that would be turned on and motivated by it and would join and say that's you know that's the kind of tactic that i'd like to do or that resonates oh, with me that's but, that sounds so binary people aren't like that they're not turned off and turned on like a switch rob i to me the the key issue with what's holding back the movement because you know millions of americans self-report that they want to take part in civil disobedience on climate but where, where is that? What, okay, so where's the, show me the demonstrations, right? Where is it happening? And mm -hmm. I think the key barrier is helplessness. Um, people feel uh, like they, they can't have an impact and they don't know where to join. And um, yeah, not, I mean, so I think the galvanizing effect of these protests and organizations, and again, bear in mind, Just Stop Oil has had probably 10 to 15 protests since the Van Gogh soup demonstration, right? That, um, that I, I think it, it's, I, again, it's not as though we have these amazingly successful, uh, yeah. robust climate movements all over the world that are like this close to winning. And these activists has have come forth and just like ruined everything. It's like, mm -hmm. Actually, we're again up against the most profitable industry in the history of the world, a media landscape that could basically care less. And like we're trying to start something. This is just the beginning. Yeah, I just I think for me, I totally agree with that uh, point about efficacy that people don't feel like it's clear how to take action that would make a difference on climate. And so you have this this paradox in the US where most people report that they b believe in climate change and, and admit that it's a problem, but it's really low on issue salience. It's very low on priority. People aren't going out and doing much of anything about it. They're not voting on the basis of it when they vote for candidates. It just, it, you know, it doesn't have, it lacks political punch. I completely agree. I guess, and I, and I, and I agree that there are not super uh, newsworthy, new, you know, news generating issue salience, promoting tactics that are available to us that are not this, that are really vividly obvious, you know? And yes. so I, can, I, but I would also say that it doesn't necessarily help to make the front page of the paper if it makes you look really bad either. And, and so that, to me, I see tactics like this and I'm like, well, when we've studied this, mo you know, tactics as close to this as possible, the evidence is it makes people less likely to join. And so you could say, you could make an uh -huh. argument also that 
Can right. I complete my thought, Reverend? It's, That's it's not the way it works. I interrupt like this. Wait, wait, wait. I, I didn't interrupt you and I won't interrupt you. I think that for okay. me, that, thank you. So I, I think for me, you could make an argument that if it's a huge high stakes issue, which I completely agree it is, where we need to get as many people involved as possible, that that puts a lot of pressure on us to be sure not to take tactical, uh, not to do things tactically that the best evidence suggests will backfire. I mean, you can make just as much of a stakes-based argument to never do something like this. Yeah, so I'm gonna bring in one other idea here, um, which relates to what um, uh, Zaria had written in her critique, uh, Zaria Howlett currently. Um, it's what's the goal of the activism or the, it, she talked about vulnerability reduction and focusing on justice. No one here has mentioned yet that we live now at a first for the first time in the 35 years I've been on this beat, you know, writing but since 1988. There's a half a trillion dollars. The government has already a chunk of that's bipartisan money. A chunk of that is was the Democratic IRA to make communities more resilient and have clean energy. And Jigar Shah, I did a conversation with the guy who heads the government's energy department's uh, loan program. He's got billions of dollars waiting to give to communities. So where's the activism targeted at those resources that are available now to focus on people who have the most vulnerability to do that now? This is not all about system change. Uh, and I don't see that in, uh, expressed in here. I, and again, we live in a diverse array of tactics, but which tactics get the camera? What, what dramatic tactics what get the camera? Like? What would the activism that you're describing, I mean... Oh, I can play you the clip. Jigger said there's 19,500 communities in America, period. Villages, towns, cities. There's only 4,500 that are bigger than 10,000 people. He said, I want someone in every one of those towns to, to learn what, I, what, we, what we have available, to go to your town meeting or go to your school board meeting and hand out sheets on how to do it. And that's something that's just waiting to happen. And that builds momentum and trust and engagement. And uh, it's not an us and them thing. It gets to the roots of the problem. Okay, so it, sounds like, it sounds like the government has failed to make the funds accessible and they need volunteers. No, to no. That's that not right? It. So no. What, what, I'm just trying to understand the activist he said, role here. He says, literally, maybe I should play the clip. It's, it's, it's beautifully succinct. And he wow. says... Uh, I can't force you to have the money. I can't force you to take the money. Communities have to demand it. And the people, the activists, he says, muckrakers and doers at the local level have to get busy to grab that largesse that's here now. And it, it's, you know, if we don't, if you or, and I don't okay. know a way to express that yet, then that's the communication work that I feel needs to be done very aggressively because it will not get the spotlight. It will get in a 19,500 local newspapers, but it okay, won't so, get the uh, so, spotlight. Wait, can I just, can I just add something here? I yeah, just yeah, want to say, Andy, I, I just want to say, I mean, so I'm actually studying the diffusion of funds through service corps that are coordinated through the federal government from the IRA and the bipartisan deal. So I actually know a lot about that and I'm actually doing it to look at the civic engagement and climate knowledge and participation around the people who are actually serving in those. There are lots of mechanism, mechanisms in place specifically to do the kind of work that you're talking about here. And I wouldn't want to redirect this conversation away from this type of activism because- yeah, another, another show. I mean, yeah, because this is part, again, I mean, like we're in an all of the above type of engagement moment here around the climate crisis. And I wouldn't want, I mean, every group can't do everything. And so I wouldn't, I don't think it's necessarily fair to put people on the line who are engaging in specific tactics around specific types of targets and say, you know, oh, there's also, I mean, there obviously there's lots of work to be done at the local level for sure. I think I, I, I just want to add, and just in terms of who is the climate emergency fund and what, what do we do? There's, there's first, there's not nearly enough philanthropic dollars going to climate in any way and there's not nearly enough philanthropic dollars going to climate movement building but there's approximately zero dollars going to disruptive climate activism mm -hmm. climate emergency fund is one of the very few institutional funders who will support this 
Um, so I just I think that's important to note is that, you know, these are volunteer powered organizations that that scrape by and I they they uh, take they give such high cost effectiveness per dollar because they that, like I said, they harness this uh, incredible passion and dedication of their volunteer activists and so, yeah, I just I want to encourage any potential funders or philanthropists who might be listening to think about these activists as the tip of the spear that that really do deserve our support. OK, uh, you know, I'm glad actually, Dana, that was really valuable of you to keep the conversation on the, the, the theme of the day. I think it's worth um, because of opportunity cost to really examine, you know, pathways to impact. And, you know, when I, I've written so much about energy poverty and um, climate vulnerability that I see urgent and solvable problems at that scale every day as, as uh, Christy Ebi at University of Washington, the smartest person in the world on climate and heat and health, says nobody needs to die in a heat wave, folks. Nobody, period. She makes the point over and over again. If communities have better heat action plans, and neighbors meet with neighbors and hold Billy style town halls. Billy, you know, there's another kind of town hall to have that actually does harness people, not not as a theatrical thing, but in a meaningful way going forward. So I think it's worth injecting that into this conversation to be sure we're we're all thinking of you know uh, outside of our dimensions as we go forward. It's this has been very stimulating. Uh, we could go a little longer if folks can. I know Rob, you definitely have to get off soon. Uh, and I do think there's a chapter two or three here. Uh, these these sessions I do uh, always lead to fresh questions. And uh, I just think it's great that you were able to have this conversation. Uh, I'm going to just show uh, the website of um, the Climate Emergency Network one more time. Their approach is uh, in your face, uh, in social media, uh, getting into the media occasionally. Uh, to me, one takeaway for sure is maybe putting a little heft, more heft into the obligations for how that money gets spent so that there are there's one lane possible where those situations make sense because um, lives are being harmed here um, and i think there's a way to do this that gets us the edge gets the the views and also has just a little bit more humanity in it because that scene haunts me still um, back in july and it's not not unique thanks all for being here today on columbia climate schools sustain what it's an interrogatory journey toward uh, better impacts around climate, energy, and social issues. Uh, today's uh, show with, with Margaret Salomon from Climate Resilience Fund, um, Rob Willer from Stanford, Dana Fisher from University of Maryland. Good luck with your book and the IPCC work. And Billy, uh, Billy Town, my old buddy from uh, the trenches here around, well, I'm no longer in New York, but uh, around the New York area. And I appreciate you all being here today. And this is the start of a conversation. Just as uh, Margaret said, this is a long journey ahead. Uh, it's it's hard to think of it that some, that way sometimes because of the urgency. But it's buckle up, buckle Thank up. You. There you go. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Hallelujah for sure. Thanks for listening. I'm Andy Revkin. This audio is from my Sustain What webcast which I produce as part of my communication initiative at Columbia University's Climate School. Subscribe and get in touch with feedback or ideas for future discussions at revkin.substack.com. If you've gotten this far, a song is in order. So here's my tune, Liberated Carbon. It took a thousand generations for our species to rise But gathering and hunting was no way to get by We yearned to burn more than dung and sticks Then someone came along and said, hey, try lighting this He opened up the ground and showed us coal and oil Said, come liberate some carbon, it'll make your blood boil Liberated carbon, it'll spin your
table burns in my SUV. We can light up the planet like a Christmas tree. Yeah, they say that things are getting hot, but hey, we've got AC. Liberated carbon, it'll spin your wheels. Liberated carbon, it'll nuke your meals. Liberated carbon, it'll turn your night to day. Hey, hey, come on and liberate some carbon, babe. It's American way. Pump those electrons and that gasoline. No sweat or hurry, just turn on a machine. We send an army to the desert to keep this country free. American.